Welcome to Craig Rennie to the Kaka. Craig, tell us why you'd like to see an Inflation and Incomes Act. Well, the city has been doing some work on inflation in New Zealand for a bit. We've been looking at sort of what are the consequences of inflation, who wins and who loses, but also importantly, who's winning and who's losing from the response to that. Um, the official cash rate is the main tool that we use. The interest rate was the main tool we use to do that. And the latest set of, set of Reserve Bank forecasts show that 70,000 people will, need, will lose their jobs as a consequence of the forecast actions of the bank and as the consequences on the general economy. If the answer to your problem is to make 70,000 people redundant in New Zealand, get a better answer to your problem. Um, The Reserve Bank Act is really based on the idea that inflation is going to be created by a demand shock. Somehow we're going to get too much money, we're going to chase too few goods, and therefore you need to use the official cash rate to squeeze down demand to match with supply and bring inflation back into line. And it doesn't seem to be set up really for longer term supply shocks. It only really can respond with one blunt short term demand changing instrument, which is the official cash rate. Uh, what do you think's wrong about that setup in which we have a short term demand response to a long term supply shock? So you're absolutely right. The OCR is a, is a very powerful tool, but it's a very blunt tool. It usually just seeks to dampen expectations about growth in the future, and it's used to essentially remove some of the disposable income that we have in our pockets in order to reduce demand, and hopefully via a process, usually around 18 months long, that then reduces inflation in the economy. The challenge that we have right now is our inflation is not driven by suddenly huge amounts of new excess um, demand. Um, Our inflation has been driven by supply shortages, as you've said, by overseas price changes, which are not really amenable to changes in the OCR. Um, And as a consequence, what we're seeing is the sort of the structural underpinnings of the economy being really tested by that supply shock. So rent prices have gone up very quickly in New Zealand. Um, You know, uh, the median rent in Wellington is now 96% of a minimum wage worker's take-home pay. Um, That supply problem is decades in the making. The OCR is not going to challenge or, or, or change that fundamentally. So what we need to do is a new set of tools need to be brought forward to tackle these supply problems. The lack of competition in certain market problems, the lack of investment in infrastructure and in, in investments in the public realm, which again have led to cost problems. We have two, two forms of inflation in economics, two flavours, if you like, um, one of which is a, a demand pull and cost push. And this is not a demand pull inflation. This is a cost push inflation. And the OCR is not really a fantastic tool to do that. So what would the Inflation and Incomes Act do to deliver long-term increases in supply in response to that core inflation problem. So one of the things that we know is that there are plenty of levers that the the government can be using, that other people can be using, in order to help tackle some of these problems. So, for example, um, we know we have a lack of competition in the supermarket and in other sectors of the economy. So what can the government be doing to help, A, increase competition in in that? And there are some quite imaginative things that you can be doing there in terms of land availability, overseas um, investment office um, uh, regulations, um, R&D expenditure, innovation. 
Um, but there are also some things that you can be doing in terms of investment that will help reduce our increase sorry our resilience to future inflation change so you can take car you can take uh, petrol and diesel cars off the road replace them with electric vehicles that not only has carbon benefits that only has environmental benefits it actually reduces our exposure to inflation driven by overseas oil prices if you increase home insulation if you make home insulation more widely available more subsidized not only do you have spill-off benefits for uh, for people who live in properties because they're now paying less for their energy you've got carbon benefits on the other side. We can reduce the amount of coal and oil that we're using to power the grid. So there are plenty of things that we can be doing both from an investment perspective to help improve our inflation resilience in future, and there are things that we can be doing in terms of our market settings to improve competition, to deliver greater research and development, and to improve the amount of skills, the human capital that exists in New Zealand, so that when we see increases in demand and when we see shortages of supply, we're more resilient to that change. And what specifically could the government do to improve investment, which over the last 30 years has been lower than it should be. We've created a $100 billion deficit according to the Infrastructure Commission. How would the Inflation and Incomes Act force or require the government to increase investment and to change the settings so that the private sector increased investment? So one of the things that we'll be looking at there is um, looking at the liability going forward. So we know um, the cost of everything in New Zealand, but we don't know what we're not building or the costs of not building. So if we're not building enough hospitals or schools or roads or rail infrastructure or other things to meet a growing population with new population needs, with particularly with the demographics of New Zealand, um, then that's a cost we're asking the future to bear. And so we're storing up inflation in that case. So we sh- that then makes it really clear to the public that you've got a choice It's not a case of a tax cut and lower government spending. It's a tax cut or we increase the liability on the other side. Secondly, we can be looking um, at our general fiscal settings. So, you know, we have a a level of government spending, which by historical standards in New Zealand is very low in comparison to our, our overseas peers. It's around 30%. That's a really arbitrary number. There's actually no reason why 30% is the right number. The right number is the number that gives us the kind of economy and the kind of investments that we need to see to reduce our exposure to inflation in the future, to give people higher quality of living and better public services. So how can we be systematically increasing the level of expenditure to deliver the kinds of economy that and, and housing and other forms of public sector infrastructure so that we don't face the problems that we have now, which are driving some of the inflation costs? Can we do this um, without taxing the uh, increase in the value of residential land, either through some sort of capital gains tax or residential land tax? I think there's a range of measures that we could be using to help deliver that, and a land tax or a capital gains tax but, you know, may well be part of that mix. I would, be, I would personally be in favour of a capital gains um, tax. Um, I th- New Zealand's a very unusual country around the rest of the developed world and not having a capital gains tax, and it leads to all sorts of oddly skewed investment decisions in New Zealand in comparison to elsewhere. But it's not, it, that taxation isn't the be-all and end-all. That's, that's a tool to help deliver the revenue to then make the expenses that we need to deliver, to make the investments that we need. We can tax more, but if we just simply use that to deliver sounder public finances, um, in air quotes, um, or if we use it just simply to reduce our debt, we're just simply increasing the liability in the future 
for everyone in terms of the things that we have chosen not to build, but we're expecting them to build. But in terms of the, the inflation consequences of that, one of the things that we need to do right now is we need to say if we are going to deliver tax reform, we should do so in a fiscally neutral way so that we're not adding further short-run inflation consequences on the table. So how can we give a little bit more money, a little bit more um, respite to those um, who desperately need it right now because they're facing much higher costs of livings than other groups? And how can we do that by asking those who've you know, done really well over the past 10 years to pay a little more? How would this Inflation and Incomes Act work with the current Reserve Bank Act, which we all know and understand and has been essentially the place where we parked all of our tools and our targets for inflation and said, inflation, that's a Reserve Bank thing. You, Reserve Bank Governor or Monetary Policy Committee, you're responsible for keeping it between 1% and 3%. Nothing to do with us. Uh, how would those two acts work together? Well, one of the problems that we have in, in New Zealand um, uh, in, in this particular area is that we've had a failure to have a long-term economic plan. And that failure to have that long-term economic plan has meant that we haven't made the investments that we need to deliver. How is that a problem here? Because I've heard at least two Reserve Bank governors now call for monetary policy to have fiscal policy mates. And so how do we make sure we're using all of the tools that are available to us to stabilise inflation in the future? So for the Reserve Bank, the Inflation and Incomes Act targets core inflation. That's the really corrosive inflation. That's food, fuel, rent. And in doing so, it reduces the inflation on those, for those households who don't have any options. They can't opt their way out of paying those things because everybody has to pay those things. Um, the Reserve Bank would then have greater ability to fine-tune general CPI inflation. Those two things actually complement and work with each other. Because if you've got greater certainty about core inflation, if you're making sure your market settings are as good as they can be to deliver stable inflation in those areas, then the Reserve Bank can look and target actually what's its job in general inflation and avoid overreacting or underreacting to changes in core inflation, which are often driven by pricing overseas. And how would we know it was successful? Because one of the problems we have at the moment is that the Reserve Bank is seen as responsible for inflation and the Reserve Bank says, there's only so much we can do. Uh, you, government, are responsible for a lot of these longer-term supply issues. It's your fault. And the government says, no, it's the Reserve Bank's fault. <laughs> and if you've got one side with an Inflation and Incomes Act and the Reserve Bank with a Reserve Bank Act pointing at each other. How do we know who's responsible and who to kick out if it doesn't work? Sure. So, one, well, the government is always fundamentally responsible, regardless. Um, uh, but, it, you know, the Reserve Bank can do things, but it's the Reserve Bank is not elected. It gets It's the government who gets elected or unelected as a consequence of its decisions. Um, but in terms of how do these two acts work together, um, the, Reser the, Inf the Inflation and Incomes Act asks government, a bit like the Child Poverty Act, to set targets and to then say, where will um, inflation be, will be for core items? How do we make sure that we're not paying more than 30% of household income for rents in New Zealand, for example? Um, and then what are the policies that are going to get us there over 10 years? And we can track that progress, much like we track child poverty, 
targets to make sure where we have is the policy suite working is it taking us in the right direction or are things heading in the wrong direction and having that target gives us the ability to then say we can fine tune our policy response to deliver on that goal or aspiration so for example in fuel poverty um, there are 140,000 uh, uh, households in New Zealand who exist in fuel poverty right now. That means they're spending more than 10% of their household income on fuel. We should be looking and saying, well, what, what's the policy suite that's going to deliver change on that? What's the reduction in that number look like? And well, how do we have complementary government policies to tackle that problem, be it through insulation, be it through moving subsidised heat pumps, be it through um, uh, a delivering change in the energy market itself? But all of those things work together to deliver on your goal of sustainable core inflation. And for us, core inflation is the household basket as measured by the household living price index for the poorest 20% of households in New Zealand. So it's a standard externally derived measure, not a measure the government's making up at that point in time. Just playing devil's advocate finally here, governments have acts of parliament they have to follow, but we all know in real life there is a hierarchy of directions from Parliament. And in our creation of in the political economy, the main beast, the guiding light, is the Public Finance Act, which says we must run the finances prudently. Mm. And that's been interpreted broadly by both major parties and by the, the bureaucracies to mean we keep the size of government around about 30% of GDP, which has been signed up to by at least the Labour Party and uh, National have pretty much run it around there as well over the longer run. And then that there is some sort of debt limit or ceiling or target, generally quite low. It has been 20% gross. It's currently net 30%, which is above where we are at the moment, which is around about 20%, and we're on track to take that down to about 14.5%. So all very fine to say government's responsibility is to reduce core inflation by investing more in building up supply, be it housing, be it energy, uh, whatever. Uh, however... My fiscal responsibility rules and the Public Finance Act trump your Inflation and Incomes Act. And yeah, you can say all this stuff about child poverty and, for example, carbon zero, but you can't use the balance sheet or a higher income share of the economy for government to solve this problem. And therefore, it's a waste of time because the Public Finance Act and the debt track, um, keeping it falling and being well below 30%, effectively ties you down. Um, the Public Finance Act is, you know, and we've talked about it in the past, about the, the big four acts um, of 30 years ago, um, which still influence New Zealand today. And the Public Finance Act is probably up there as, you know, one of the sole surviving uh, and biggest of those things. Um, the Public Finance Act requires the government to act prudentially and to set short-term and long-term fiscal goals and fiscal aspirations. Um, but, you know, f 
despite the fact that, you know, it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. It's sort of don't stare at the man behind the curtain. He's not that important. Um, all of those things are interpretable how you like, how you want to deliver them. You've just got to be open with the public about what your goals and aspirations are. And then you can deliver on them, um, uh, you know, to your heart's content. So for us, this is a, for the CTU, this is a choice. We're choosing to either buy higher inflation in future. We're choosing to either load the costs of inflation on those with the narrowest shoulders in New Zealand. We're choosing to underinvest in our public realm if we take a very narrow interpretation of what the Public Finance Act is. In a perfect world, we'd reform it. We probably don't have that time right now, especially in, t- in ahead of an election cycle. But one of the things we can do is show the kinds of leadership that we saw during COVID and say things need to change. We can't simply go back to the land that we had before COVID because if we do so, we're accepting and buying all of the problems we had before COVID in terms of homelessness, in terms of economic insecurity, in terms of bad outcomes structurally for the economy. So for us, this is very much a case of the the Incomes and Inflation Act um, helps set government, gives it a freer hand in order to be able to act in the marketplace because now it can show why it's doing so. It's doing so because there are long-term aspirations in New Zealand in terms of getting renting rental prices under control in terms of delivering a more competitive building materials market, which is actually one of the biggest contributors to inflation right now, to decarbonizing using a really just transition so that we're not putting, we're not asking thousands of workers to lose their jobs without having a plan. We can do all of those things because we have a framework through which we can act, which is the Inflation and Incomes Act. But aren't you also making a choice to move away from the current model which is all about minimising the size of government in the economy, minimising government debt, making sure that you scrunch down on demand to keep inflation and interest rates low and wage growth low, so that you can have very high asset prices, and in particular land prices, when you have very low inflation and interest rates, and you also have low investment in new supply, for example, of uh, easily buildable upon, upon residential land. That's the New Zealand way. You'd be breaking the New Zealand way if you didn't prioritise untaxed gains in and unearned gains in residential land values, wouldn't you? Well, the New Zealand way is breaking too many New Zealanders. Um, it's causing too... We can't afford this level of poverty in New Zealand that we have right now. And inflation makes that worse, particularly for those who have very low or fixed incomes. And so, you know, that 30, 40 year experiment that we have with uh, uh, with a deregulated, light touch, um, broad based, low rate, as my friends at the Inland Revenue would like to call it, except taxation, for except for capital, um, you know, um, a taxation system, um, where, you know, and when we look at the countries around the world that we, w- that we wish to emulate, that we often look at and say, we wish we had services like that, or we wish we looked a bit more like that, they don't have the same investment and expenditure and taxation settings that we do. We have champagne tastes for our public services and we have champagne ham budgets in terms of actually how we deliver on those. And so, you know, we need to be changing that model. How we go, economists can argue till the cows come home, trust me, they do, about how we change that. 
but the status quo doesn't work. And if we simply seek to go back to the status quo solutions, then we're buying all the problems we had before. That's why having an act in this place and giving the public some sense of how the government's policy suite is actively delivering on the things they really care about, their ability to pay rent, their ability to look after their family, their ability to have some disposable income in the future. That, to me, seems like a really straightforward thing to do. We can report on it in budget. We can report on it through government policy documents. And the public has a sense that actually the government's on their side. Craig Rennie, the Chief Economist for the CTU, thank you very much for being on The Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey.